those working in financial markets see what's coming. It's the democratization of private investing. Higher return opportunities in private equity are currently only available to sophisticated institutional and quasi-institutional investors, but that's changing. Alex Robinson founded Juniper Square in 2014 to transform private equity with innovative software and solutions. Today, the company is trusted by over 1,200 GPs to manage more than 200,000 investors and $1.5 trillion in assets. Juniper Square has quickly become the leading provider of investment management solutions for commercial real estate, the company's entry point into private equity. Alex shares with us his insights on real estate private equity and how his company offers an elegant solution to a once complicated problem. Juniper Square has raised over $100 million and is backed by Redpoint, Ribbit Capital, and Felicis Ventures. We hope you enjoy the show. So Alex, thanks so much for taking the time. It's a delight to connect with you today. I'd actually like to start somewhere a little unique in that I noticed you went to Stanford Business School. And it seems like that academic institution just turns out entrepreneurs. Could you share with us a little bit about kind of what makes Stanford just a unique place? Sure. Yeah. And thanks for having me, RJ. Great to be here today. Yeah. So I was in business school about 10 years ago, or I guess more than 2007 to 2009. I went to the graduate school of business at Stanford and I did go there sort of with the intention of starting a company. So I started my career at Microsoft. I spent five or six years there in kind of product management, product strategy type roles and uh, knew that I didn't want to work at a big company forever. And applied to and was fortunate to get into Stanford with the goal of getting into the Silicon Valley ecosystem and being part of a culture that really promotes and celebrates entrepreneurship. So I guess one part of your question is that I think there is a selection bias where at this point we can talk about how did it get started, that selection bias, but there's momentum now in that I think there's a tendency if you're an entrepreneurially minded person, you're probably, you know, the business schools and you want to get an MBA. And we can also talk about what's useful about that and what's not to building companies. Chances are Stanford is probably at or near the top of your list. And there was actually an interesting study that a professor at Stanford did where they looked at unicorn companies that have been founded by sort of the top 10 business schools. And they normalized to class size because say HBS is a lot bigger than Stanford. And I think Stanford was maybe two or three times mm-hmm. uh, the rate of unicorn founding as others. So I think it's, you know, there's selection bias, there's the proximity to Silicon Valley and the school and the sort of history of the school's relationship to innovation is one that really promotes and the, the curriculum focuses on entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about Juniper Square, but before we get there, when you were at Microsoft and you were kind of seeing how that company worked from the inside, did you already start to get the idea that you wanted to start your own software business? I did. I mean, I come from a very entrepreneurial family. My family background is in real estate. We'll talk about Juniper Square, I guess, in a minute, but we sort of focus on the real estate industry. That's where it comes from. So, you know, I never held an actual job growing up. I would be working in and around the real estate that my dad owned. And so for me, I always had this sort of very entrepreneurial bent to my business interests. And I got a job at Microsoft. I graduated into the first recession in 01, 02, and jobs were not in ready supply, at least for me. And so I felt really fortunate to have a job 
to get to work at Microsoft. And then I had, a, it was sort of one of these things I thought I'd work there for maybe a year or two and sort of each next opportunity seemed so compelling that I couldn't think of anything else I'd rather do. And at some point along that journey, five, six years in, I thought, okay, if I don't pull the ripcord now and get out and go pursue this interest I have of doing something more entrepreneurial, I'll, I'll never do it. So that's kind of how it worked for me. Yeah. It's, it does seem like there's the right time to kind of embark on kind of the switch paths from corporate to entrepreneurship. Something about the real estate that you that you said that your family was in it. And there's a lot of folks, I think, in our audience that probably either are invested in real estate or are looking to diversify and do more investment in real estate directly. How has it worked out, you know, for you with your family background? Is it one of the kind of your preferred asset class to work with? There's a lot of material out there, YouTube, et cetera, on how you should begin to allocate out to, to real estate. Could you tell us a little bit about how you think about that as an investment class? Sure. Yeah. So to give you a little bit of context, this family background in real estate, we're not talking the Donald Trump family in New York here. My father was a dentist, uh, but as is the case for a lot of sort of medical professionals where there's sort of reasonable cash flow in the profession, uh, real estate offers a really great investment opportunity because of the tax advantages and because sort of the whole system is subsidized uh, for cheap leverage. So buying apartment buildings, buying shopping centers, these are things that can really compound if you've got sort of excess free cash flow. I think that's what people turn to a lot in getting started in, in real estate. And so for me, I was always drawn to it in the sense that certainly, you know, Stanford Business School, we take classes on, say, how to look at a stock like General Electric and try to build some DCF model and determine whether a share price of $37 a share or whatever it is, is reflective of all the future expectations. And I just could never get excited about that kind of analysis in the same way that I could get excited about thinking about a building mm -hmm. and thinking, okay, is this where people want to live? At the end of the day, real estate, if you're interested in macroeconomics, a lot of real estate's knowing where you are in the business cycle and sort of timing your bets in the right way. If you're interested in demography, a lot of real estate also is just understanding supply and demand and where those trends are intersecting or diverging. Or if you're interested in anthropology and just trying to understand the trends of in this business cycle, in the early part of the business cycle, the big trend in, here in Silicon Valley was all these young people wanting to leave the sort of traditional home of Silicon Valley, move into the city of San Francisco, work in these dense environments. Now you have these fundamental changes with COVID and the rise of more distributed work and people are fleeing out of the cities. And so if you're interested in those types of topics, real estate is a really great application of them. Because at the end of the day, once you kind of understand how to underwrite a building, these are really the bigger questions that you're focused on. So for me, I was always very drawn to that. And, you know, so in my own personal portfolio, massively overweight real estate relative, you know, typical institutional LP might be at 10% of mm -hmm. their portfolio, maybe 12, maybe 13. It's been rising. Uh, mm -hmm. over the years. But also there's diversification benefits once you have a lot of wealth and there's concentration benefits to building wealth where you feel like you have a, an advantage. So I don't sell any Juniper Square stock because I believe that continuing to be very concentrated in Juniper Square is a very good sort of investing strategy. I kind of think real estate the same way. Which markets do you like? Well, I mean, I, I like the markets that I know, you know, so I know the Seattle market very well. I'm from there. I know the Southern California market, spend a lot of time there. I know a lot of people there. I know the Bay Area market, a little bit in New York. 
so it tends to be these types of markets. The other thing that I would say, and what we're working very hard to provide over time at Juniper Square is I am not a professional real estate investor. You know, I spend 95% of my free available attention units on matters at Juniper Square. And so I'm more interested in how do we enable ways to hold diversified baskets of, of real estate that are going to achieve good risk-adjusted returns. And the thing about real estate is the vast majority of it, it's owned privately. You can't go buy it on an exchange. So something like 85% of the commercial real estate buildings that are out there are privately owned. And so, and it's very fragmented. If you know somebody who's a real estate GP in St. Louis, you know, that's not going to help you deploy capital in Denver, most likely. And so a lot of the ways that I want to invest in real estate are not available yet, but we're working on enabling them at Juniper Square. Oh, fantastic. Okay. So yeah, let's talk about the, the company. Let's set the stage first. What's the size of this market? How many GPs are out there? And for now, it seems like you're focused on real estate. Maybe that changes in the future, but for now, it's real estate. How many GPs are there and what does that represent in terms of assets? Yeah. So real estate's the largest asset class globally. It's the second largest asset class in the US after public equities. So estimates vary, but a good kind of round number to have in your head is there's probably about $20 trillion of sort of asset value in commercial real estate in the US, right? So now just focusing in on, on the US. Of that 20 trillion, probably something like 10 trillion of it is owner-occupied. So this would be like my dad, as an example, owning an apartment building. He doesn't have any outside in investors. And then probably about anywhere between 7 and 10 trillion of it is professionally managed by general partners, you know, people that are raising funds from outside investors to go buy, build, or improve buildings. So on the order of 7 to 10 trillion in the US, we think there's about 30,000 GPs that are doing this professionally in the US. There's a very long tail of people who would not consider this their profession, but who are putting together investments. I mean, you probably have friends that maybe have pooled together to buy a duplex or a a condo building or something like this, they wouldn't consider themselves a professional real estate investor, but they're putting together investments. You can look at sites like Bigger Pockets that have millions of members that are sort of looking to deploy capital in this way. But the market mm -hmm. that we serve is real estate GPs. There's about 30,000 of them. We have about 1,200 who use Juniper Square. Collectively, they're managing probably something like 30,000 funds and investments, about 300,000 investors, and about approaching 2 trillion of underlying real estate value. And what our software does and what our services do is essentially, if you're in the business of putting together partnerships with outside investors to go buy real estate, you got to do this complex accounting, you got to keep the books and records, you got to securely move money, you got to do reporting. And that's what our sort of software and our suite of services helps our customers with. Mm -hmm. And how did you first kind of get into selling the solution? It, with with a big market like this, did you have a certain kind of angle or, or a certain kind of segment of GPs that you first approached? Yeah, well, the, the genesis for the company was my own experience as a limited partner or an LP. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if wind back the clock, we founded the company in 2014. If you wind back the clock to say 2013, I was spending a lot of time investing in real estate as an LP. This is finding local GPs in these markets that I described that where I had a lot of relationships and knew the markets well. And what I was struck by as a limited partner providing capital 
to these private real estate deals was just the the discrepancy or the divergence, if you will, between the experience as an investor in the public markets where you've got Charles Schwab and E-Trade and you know, pick your, now we got Robinhood and so forth, pick your sort of low-cost discount, fully digital brokerage where your entire experience is digital. You access the markets via the web browser, you move money, you establish accounts, you sign paperwork, you have all the information at your fingertips. And that's been a story of incredible digital transformation in the public equities markets over the last 20, 30 years. And then when you switch over to private real estate, it's not an exaggeration to say that people are sending the subscription paperwork and the operating agreements via FedEx packages for you to fill out by hand and then mail it back. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was like stepping back in time 20 years in the world of private real estate. And the genesis for the company was essentially a belief that the private markets of which real estate is a part, but really what we're talking about here is the complex private ownership of a liquid assets. So there's much more than real estate that's owned in these types of private equity structures. Our belief was that the private markets over time were going to look like the public markets. They were going to become digitized. In the future, you were going to be able to access them via web browser. You're going to be able to trade by clicking a button. You're going to have the benefits of the public markets of efficiency and transparency and liquidity and accessibility. Like today, most people, unless you're very wealthy or unless you are very well connected, don't have an easy way to access private real estate. Yet it's a very compelling asset class to have exposure to, especially if you believe that we're rolling into a more inflationary environment. So that was the genesis for the company, was this belief of the private markets are going to come to look like the public markets, and it's going to be software at the end of the day that sort of enables this transition. And we want to be part of enabling that transition because we think if you make markets work better, sort of one of the highest order things, highest order ways you can have an impact on the world. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to talk about the investors in your company. But before we do that, share with us a little bit about the competitive landscape. I mean, it it seems like there's others and kind of trying to do this type of thing. Not sure if they directly compete with you or, you know, it's kind of more tangential. Like I'm sure there's at least half a dozen or or more that kind of do something similar. Tell us about the differentiating factors to of, of Juniper Square. Yeah. So the competitor that we compete with most directly, it sounds kind of trite to say, but it's true, is Excel. Right. So we've migrated many tens of thousands of investments now. And so we've got a pretty good lens on this. And if you go look at what is the source data for all this. The source of all this data coming into Juniper Square, 95% of the time, it's Excel. It's not some export from an existing software system or some existing ERP. So, generally speaking, the system of truth, the system of record for all, you know, for this $10 trillion sort of pool of capital is just millions of Excel spreadsheets sitting out there on, on people's desktops. Mm-hmm. So that is, and Excel's a formidable competitor. It's nearly free, yeah. easy to use. So it's, it's not actually trivial to overcome Excel, but that's our primary competitor if you just look at what we're displacing in terms of the status quo. Now, at the higher level of sort of these insights of public and private markets converging and what does that look like or what are ways to play that, you know, when the Jobs Act was passed in, I think it was 2012, but really became clarified and, and you started to be able to act on it closer to maybe 2014, there were dozens of real estate crowdfunding companies got started. And the sort of core insight was the same of like, wow, technology will enable a more efficient way to connect buyers and sellers in the market. 
And most of those real estate crowdfunding companies are no longer around uh-huh. today. And one of the core challenges in real estate, and really this is any asset class, is that the people you want to invest with in the asset class who generate really consistently strong returns and are justifying their fees by delivering more than market returns on a risk-adjusted basis, everybody wants to invest with them. There's a line out the door of people that want to invest with them. So you have these adverse selection properties in the market that you have to figure out how to overcome. In other words, if you just set up a website and you say, anybody that needs to raise some capital for a deal, come here. Anybody that wants to place some capital into a deal, come here. You're going to get kind of the lowest quality on both sides of the market. And that's a fundamental, that's not even about real estate. That's just about the way these asset classes work. And so because of that property, if you really want to transform how investing works in the asset class, you have to become the actual operating system of record for these investments. And then you actually have this funny thing where you have a positive selection bias in that the GPs who are growing the most quickly, who have the most investors, who have the most capital, have the greatest need for software. And you're only able to really enable, say, liquidity of a private real estate position if you can sort of deeply be the source system of handling the complexity of that liquidity for the, for the GP and the LP. And so our approach, there are some other companies that are sort of taking this same core approach in other asset classes, right? Say in venture, we're very focused on real estate as our beachhead. Uh, although, as, as I said, this isn't really a real estate problem. It's a private equity problem. So there are others who are taking this core approach. And there are other analogies you can look at that are similar to how we think about the world. Like you can look at what Square did as an example, where they start with this payment card reader, then they move to point of sale. By actually owning that point of sale system for the customer, they are able to better underwrite that customer and offer differentiated financial products for that customer that no one else can offer. Toast is another analogy. Bill.com, there's a bunch of these. And so I think that's there are a lot of parallels now that we can look at that are demonstrating success in other markets, although certainly that wasn't clear in 2014 when we got started. Right. Uh, you have highly reputable investors in, in Redpoint and Ribbit and others. One question I always like to ask is how have your investors helped you or, or how have they added value beyond providing financial capital? Yeah, for us, I mean, we're just beyond thrilled with all three of our major investors. So Felicis led our Series A, Ribbit led our Series B, Redpoint led our Series C. We've raised over $100 million across the three of them. And both the firms, but then you know the, you sort of pick a partner more than you pick a firm. This is what I like to tell other people who ask me for fundraising advice. And so the actual partners have been, I think the biggest way that they have helped is from the very beginning, seeing how the pieces we wanted to put together were very long-term in our thinking as a company. So we start out saying, hey, we're going to do this crazy thing called you know building investor relations software for real estate GPs. And somehow that's going to ladder up to transforming some of the world's largest asset classes. And back in 2013, 2014, I can count on a single hand the people who thought that vision made any sense or was compelling in any way. All three of our investors have, I think, a really clear commitment to our long-term vision of where we want to go as a company. We recognize this is a will take a lot of investment over a sustained period of time to get there. And it, it's really that commitment to the vision that is the way they're most helpful. And then, of course, there's all kinds of things like helping to hire executives and kind of being a kitchen cabinet for me and other senior executives at the company where they're helpful as well. But yeah, I can't say enough good things about the investors we have. 
And, you know, we're coming up on time. So last question, can you tell us about someone you think about as kind of the quintessential leader? It doesn't necessarily have to be in business, although it can be in business, but you, as you're growing this company, as you're scaling quickly and you come bump up against some critical moments and questions you need to ask yourself, is there kind of a person that you try to channel and, and think, how would this person evaluate the, the problem? So for a company of our scale, right, we serve you know, about 1,200 customers. We have about 400 employees. We're quite complex in that we have a software subscription business. So we operate a SaaS business just like any other SaaS business would. We have a large and very rapidly growing fund administration business. So we have all the complexities of operating a highly complex services business. And then we have an emergent capital markets business, which is about financial products and transactions. And so we have three very different lines of business. And we've had to incorporate and deal with the complexity of moving from a single product and a single customer to multiple products and multiple customers relatively early on in our life. And it has not been easy, by the way. And so I guess that the way I think about it is I look to what Amazon has done and what Jeff Bezos have, has done as really kind of an exemplar in this area of you know, how do you execute on multiple initiatives at once? How do you create the right organizational framework where teams can be decentralized? How do you continue to operate and innovate at speed when you are starting to deal with real scale? And he's a leader in Amazon as a company and the culture they've created and the operating principles is one that I probably study the most of all of them out there. Well, I've, I've heard stories of his early days when he decided to move to Washington to be closer to Microsoft uh, so that he could pick off the talent. Any inklings of moving to uh, your home state? Well, you know, we're, we're a very distributed company now. So our pre-COVID, our headquarters are very much in San Francisco, probably two-thirds of our workforce was in San Francisco. We had a second hub in Austin, Texas, and we've really become very distributed. So now two-thirds of more than two-thirds of our employees are now distributed. Something like 85% of the employees we've hired year to date are distributed. They're not in a, our San Francisco or our Austin office. And I've made a choice as the CEO of the company to consider myself a distributed worker, even though I, I live in the Bay Area, because I think it's so important that we make this transition to be, we call it being digital first. Meaning like we're, we primarily operate in the cloud, but we do have offices that support gathering in person. So we actually have a lot of employees in Seattle. I think we have maybe approaching two dozen. So we're already operating at reasonable scale up there. But I think the decisions are a little bit different for us. The constraints are different. I think part of the reason that they moved the company to Washington was also tax related, funnily enough. And we, we will have some of those same constraints. Right. Well, Alex, I want to thank you for, again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Yeah, my pleasure, RJ. Thank you for having me. 